You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. We, uh, you know, we get you the news and we keep you on top of the news. And Alhamdulillah, we bring you, uh, bring you topics that are relevant. But someone that was really relevant from the time of the pandemic was our very own Dr. Shankara Chetty, who is a who is a you know a GP but specializing in microbiology. And you know maybe I can go on and add that he's an activist also for the cause of truth. And you know truth shall set you free. But Dr. Shankara Chetty has been embraced and celebrated by many across the globe for his. You know, activism against uh, what is happening uh, to mankind. You know, mankind, there is a biological genocide that's uh, being, it's a medical biological genocide that's being perpetrated against mankind. And one of them uh, that has come to the fore is our very own uh, Dr. Shankara Chetty. We embrace him, we celebrate him, and we applaud him for what he does. Uh, Dr. Shankara Chetty, uh, let me first uh, welcome uh, the listeners of Amarka Sahaba with the uh, with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and also welcoming our Dr. Shankara Chetty. With a hearty good evening, uh, Doctor, and tell me how you're doing. Uh, I'm, I'm doing well, Shafat, and uh, welcome to your listeners. Uh, I hope you have a great discussion again. No, also, you know, yeah, we uh, look forward uh, to having you on this platform. And, uh, you know, let's get back, uh, you know, to our preamble. Yeah, many know who you are, but some of them that are new listeners, they didn't know who's uh, Dr. Shankara all about, you know, it all started off with a thing called COVID, with a thing called, yeah. you know, if you don't take it, hey, you know, you, you know, you'll be dead. And if you take it, hey, you'll be saved. And it so happened that when you took it, you died even quicker. Doctor, this fills the people in and then uh, yeah, we can continue with our discussion. Uh, all right, but uh, <clears throat> as I think the listeners are well aware, I'm in a bit of uh, hot water with the Health Professions Council of South Africa. Uh, my journey uh, in 2020, I started treating COVID physically myself. Uh, I pitched a tent outside my home and uh, wanted to see patients physically because I thought that there's a lack of uh, information around the disease itself. We were hearing about hospitals and ventilations and things, but nobody provided us information about how the patient initially presented, how the disease progressed, what led to them going to hospital. So I decided to pitch a tent outside and see them physically and understand this. Uh, a lot of patients came to me with COVID positive diagnosis. Uh, they just had slightly sore throats, loss of smell and taste, body aches and pains, the usual when you get a viral infection. And so I mentioned to each one, I want to, uh, I want to see them immediately. They get breathless because that was the critical part. Uh, after the first 20 patients, I got the first five that returned breathless. Uh, from uh, the, the timing, every one of those five patients came back exactly a week after they started to get unwell. So the eighth day, uh, seven, uh, exactly a week later. So if you started to feel unwell on a Monday, you recovered. Uh, during that week, you thought you were over it, and suddenly, exactly to the day, a week later, you started to get sick again. So I knew that a subset were in, of patients was having a second phase to this illness, and it was very quick in onset. On the eighth day, you got up in the morning feeling tired. By evening, you needed hospitalization. But on the seventh day, you were perfectly fine. You thought you had recovered. So I thought, well, I'm dealing with a biphasic illness. Uh, the second part, being so rapidly progressive, was either venom, or a hypersensitivity reaction to something in the virus, the dead virus. And so I treated it as such. I had astounding results. Patients recovered within the day. Uh, great improvements with the onset of a uh, second phase of treatment. And so that confirmed that I'm dealing with some kind of uh, immune dysregulation. In the second way, I identified it as spike protein. I knew that spike protein in the virus was triggering the second phase in some patients, and it was causing all the death. So I started speaking out that spike protein is the primary pathogen of COVID illness, not coronavirus. Coronavirus is a mild thing. We all develop robust immunity to it, and it's not uh, the virus that's killing us. It's an allergic reaction to some part of the virus, specifically spike protein, and only certain people are allergic to it. So it was my aim to try and figure out who's allergic. I contacted a few labs to try and set up testing. But uh, that... Uh, uh, cast the upcoming vaccines in a very poor light. If spike protein was the problem, uh, then a vaccine that gets your body to make spike protein would be reckless and dangerous. 
And so at that point, <clears throat> before the mRNA vaccines were released, I started speaking out about the dangers, that uh, the possibility of danger, getting the body to make uh, untold amounts of spike protein. Uh, I was still unaware as to whether this was intentional or not, but it didn't seem very scientific. And I'm sure we all know in the first uh, year of the pandemic, there was a lot of unscientific nonsense being propagated. And so, yeah, I realized that there's some sort of agenda at play. Uh, in speaking out against the vaccines and with speaking for early treatment, I was ignored, which seems strange that I found a way to negate the uh, mortality of the pandemic and no one wanted to listen. Uh, it so happened in uh, in uh, April the following year, 21, I had an interview with Philip Macmillan and uh, the world started uh, hearing about what I had discovered. Uh, I then had a meeting with people from the US uh, Department of Defense, uh, people that were involved in the CIA, and I got the lowdown on what was actually going on. It's at that point that my suspicions were confirmed that we're dealing with a bioweapon uh, attack. The virus was an engineered virus, and the spike protein was specifically engineered to cause problems. So straight away, the vaccine was put into a polite. It's going to cause deaths. Uh, one of the uh, people that I spoke to mentioned that the vaccines are the second part of a uh, global military campaign, and they will insist everyone takes it. At that point, it was only uh, the old age homes and healthcare workers that were taking the vaccine. So yes, I understood uh, the vaccines are dangerous, but uh, if they were going to force people to take it, that would be a poisoning. And so I waited to see who's going to force who. And as soon as the mandates came out, uh, I realized that, yes, it is a global agenda. And of course, uh, we are being forced to take a toxic uh, uh, intervention. Uh, it was at that point, uh, Shafat, that uh, I was on a Caribbean summit. <clears throat> where was, I was called upon the last day, three-day summit, to summarize what we had been talking about. And the other doctors on the panel with me were uh, complaining about the non-scientific nature of our interventions. And I just mentioned that uh, if you don't understand the agenda, then things look nonsensical. And someone asked me, well, what do you think the agenda is? And of course, my conscience got the better of me because uh, nobody at that point was talking out against the vaccine. Everyone was very hopeful uh, of its uh, efficacy. And so I mentioned what I thought the agenda was. I said that spike protein is a very elaborately designed poison that's meant to kill people without you knowing you were poisoned. And I went on to explain the structure of spike protein, what we would expect as side effects, and of course, uh, the irrationality behind the vaccine that only gives us an individual benefit. And we're trying to force it on everyone to get a group benefit, but there's no proof of any group benefit. Now, that's the video that was the first video made that brought to the public's attention the nature of what's going on, uh, that we are dealing with a man-made, elaborately designed poison. And that's the video that got me in all the trouble with the council itself. So today I'm sitting with a case against me for supposedly spreading misinformation. Uh, but yeah, that's that's something that's uh, in the future to defend. Mm, I, you know, uh, thank you for that, uh, doctor. I was... Uh, uh, I mean, a week ago, I was interviewing a holistic pract uh, practitioner and, you know, he does cupping and so forth. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you all favor with the yes. cupping. And he, he told me that, you know, he patients that uh, that were vaccinated, when they come to him and when he's cupping them, you know, when you cup anyone, the blood has to come out, right? And he says, yeah, yeah. no blood whatsoever comes out. And uh, he, he says, all these bloods of theirs has been uh, congealed, like, you know, it's become like a jelly. And it wouldn't come out of the system. And this is, he says, because of uh, them taking uh, this uh, vaccination, and it has uh, really compromised the people in 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 such a uh, in such a heavy way. What's your thoughts on that, uh, doctor? Yeah, he says absolutely right, Shafat. We've been seeing the same uh, close in close proximity to the vaccine. When you try to draw bloods from a patient, you have difficulty. Uh, I used to do uh, live blood, where you prick uh, the finger and take a drop of blood. And I noticed with vaccinated patients, when you prick their finger, you're not getting a drop of blood out uh, to use the ear in some patients. Uh, microscopically, you can see the stacking, the red blood cells stacking together. Uh, the embalmers found a lot of clots, a lot of strange clots. We're dealing with two different types of clotting issues. 
one are tiny little clots <clears throat> that block the smallest vessels in the body. And then with the embalmers, they found huge clots that are not really made of blood. They're more made of collagen and uh, elastin, uh, fibrin. And so they are, they are very strange protein-like structures that take the shape of the vessel wall. So we're seeing those side effects with clotting. In fact, with the vaccines, there's a fourfold problem that we deal with. One is the immune dysregulation that the vaccine causes. Uh, it causes hypersensitivity. So a lot of patients are sitting with severe, prolonged allergic reactions post-vaccines. And that can affect almost any system in your body. It also affects your immunity by bringing down your immune response to a COVID infection. So people that are highly vaccinated, when they get COVID, they have far more severe illness. And that's how it affects the immunity. The second thing we're seeing is that it influences uh, it influences your nerves. Uh, so a lot of people, the spike protein damages your nerves. And so we're seeing Alzheimer's and dementia and different kinds of nerve injuries. Uh, the third thing is that it influences the clotting. And so we see clotting issues, uh, all that kind of thing uh, that we've just discussed. And then the fourth thing that happens with the virus itself is that it affects your gut, your gut microbiome, and that causes persistence of your symptoms. So we're learning how to negate the effects of the vaccine, well, the effects that we've discovered. Unfortunately, we don't know what's in the vaccines and they haven't been tested to see the proper mechanism of action. Uh, recently, there was an inquiry uh, in the uh, in Australia, uh, where Pfizer was called upon to answer questions, and they asked them about the mechanism with which the vaccine causes myocarditis, because we are aware that we're seeing myocarditis, and of course the manufacturers have no clue about how the vaccine causes that myocarditis. Now, for any other medication where you've seen an undue side effect and you can't explain why that happens, the medication should be stopped immediately till you figure that out, but that's not happening. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of damage and destruction caused by the vaccine, but we're putting our heads down and trying to figure out how to negate it for those uh, that have been affected by it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's always a, uh, some people are so vociferous about this. They say it openly. They said, you know, uh, those that went in uh, uh, to hospitals and they, 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 their lungs were deliberately you know, compromised. I mean, uh, they actually exploded their lungs. I mean, it's frightening to hear this, but how true is that, doctor? Look, uh, the, the intervention, Shafat, it's, 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 uh, it's okay to make a mistake uh, if you admit that there is a mistake. And to admit there is a mistake, you've got to review your actions every step of the way and see if they're providing your patient any benefit. If not, you need to stop and redirect. But when you look at the pandemic, it seems strange that almost every public health intervention me measure that was suggested was detrimental. So we couldn't have made one mistake after the other. And we're talking about in uh, supposedly intelligent people. You're talking about experts, professors, people that are highly intellectual, that have all the science in front of them. So how did they make one mistake after the other, refuse to acknowledge, refuse to redirect, and we're still pushing those or scientific or non-scientific interventions. Uh, if you look at the lockdowns cause damage, the uh, masking cause damage, all the public health interventions. If you look at the hospital treatments, uh, patients were told, first of all, the first big mistake was patients were told to only go to hospital when they're very unwell. Now, if you've got an illness that triggers and spirals out of control, you better catch it close to the trigger. Because as it spirals, every day that goes past, you've got a more difficult patient to deal with. So the first thing they did was uh, that was wrong was tell patients to sit at home and wait. The second uh, problem was the use of remdesivir. Okay, we're not going to get into the banning of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which proved to be effective medications. Uh, effective medications that are so safe that they haven't really killed anyone in their history of note yet we chose to ban them. I don't see the point of banning chalk. It's not going to save anyone's life. So if they save medications, I can't understand why they were banned. But I do. It was to uh, prevent uh, the emergency authorization of the vaccine being jeopardized by an effective early treatment. The vaccine's emergency use was only uh, if there were no alternates. And so they had to block all the alternates. Uh, remdesivir in hospitals, 
Pemdesivir was tested for Ebola. It was found to be a very dangerous drug. A majority of patients ended up with liver and kidney failure, so it was abandoned. For some reason, without testing, it was then touted as a good medication for COVID uh, without any clinical uh, information or uh, trials. Uh, and initially in the pandemic, we saw a lot of people dying from kidney failure, liver failure, heart failure, multi-system failure, which subsequently stopped. But that was directly because of remdesivir. Uh, remdesivir, it hasn't, it hasn't saved anyone's life. Uh, and then with the ventilations, uh, ventilating someone was exactly the wrong thing to do. Uh, the lungs of these patients were swollen. There was no fluid in the lung. Now, if you look at a balloon, uh, if there's fluid in the balloon, then when you blow it and uh, blow, uh, inhale and exhale, you'll hear the fluid, crepitations. These patients had no sound, sign of fluid at all, no sounds. But the substance of the lung was swollen, even though the lung was dry. And what that did was it compromised the elasticity of the lung. So the lung couldn't stretch because it was swollen. And you could see that with patients that they were breathing easily, but they couldn't take a deep breath. The lung couldn't, the elasticity was compromised, it couldn't expand. Now, if you take that patient and put them on a ventilator, and especially a high pressure ventilator, you're forcing the lungs to stretch when there's no elasticity, and that will damage the lung and lead to fibrosis. Now, all the ventilation done globally was done with high-pressure ventilators, and we saw the fibrosis that occurred. So all the hospital interventions seem to have been detrimental. I mean, eight out of 10 patients never made it off the ventilator when ventilation wasn't necessary in the first place. So when I look at the hospital management, it was completely nonsensical. There was absolutely no proof of any of the interventions being successful, yet it was pushed by the mainstream. It was also subsidized by government and the pharmaceutical industry. So hospitals were given incentives to use those interventions, while other safe interventions that showed efficacy were banned. And so, yeah, from a treatment perspective, it was turned on its head. Doctor, there's one line that's worrying me there. Hospitals were given incentives to use this ventilator. Tell me more, Doc. That was, uh, Shafat, that was done throughout the world. And that is, uh, that is something that should never have happened. Uh, <clears throat> when you look at the incentives that were provided, uh, there were incentives provided for a positive COVID test. Uh, so for every positive COVID test that you got, you got a certain amount of money for it uh, in hospital. And so they were testing everyone to try and get as many positives as possible. If any patient was admitted in hospital with a positive COVID uh, test, then you got a second incentive uh, subsidy for that positive patient. And uh, so that what that did was it made whoever was lying in hospital uh, it made the doctors there find uh, novel ways of uh, registering them as COVID patients. So if a patient came in with a motor vehicle accident and they did a COVID test and it turned out positive, but he had no symptoms, he was put down as a COVID patient simply for the uh, for the subsidy, uh, the incentive. And so every COVID patient admitted in hospital was incentivized. You got a, another incentive if you kept if you put the patient on remdesivir. Uh, you got another incentive if you ventilated the patient. And so so a lot of doctors put patients on remdesivir when it was not necessary just to gain that, that uh, finance. Uh, a lot of them were ventilated. Uh, remember, a lot of patients who were well, uh, conscious, talking, were sedated completely and put onto a ventilator. Uh, you never do that. Uh, take away the patient's own ability to breathe and then artificially put them on a machine to breathe. But then, of course, if someone offers you a, a good handful of money to do that, then there's those unscrupulous people out there who will be willing to do that. So there was incentivizing the, the treatment or the, the inappropriate treatments of remdesivir and ventilation. And then when a patient died, if there was a death certificate issued that said the cause of death was COVID, you got another incentive for filling out that death certificate. So a lot of patients that died from other causes were listed as COVID deaths, 
just to uh, gain the, the, the incentive that was out there. So when you look at what happened with the incentives provided to hospital, you got an over-reporting of cases uh, simply because of the money. You got an overuse of remdesivir and ventilation, even though it was ineffective and proving to be dangerous. So there was financial incentive. And you've got, and you've got besides an overinflation of cases, you also got an overinflation of deaths, simply because a positive uh, a COVID death listed on a death certificate brought you some reward. And that's how they manipulated the pandemic to increase the cases and stoke fear, increase the deaths and stoke fear, and of course using remdesivir and uh, ventilation to increase the morbidity that we saw. So people got scared thinking that, well, someone went into hospital looking reasonably well, ended up on a ventilator and died. But that was all inappropriate treatment. And inappropriate treatment by doctors incentivized to use the inappropriate treatment. You know, doctors, sometimes you think, you know, who's at the head of this? I mean, you're looking at the whole uh, scenario. You look at the package deal, the World Health Organization, pharmaceuticals, doctors, scientists, governments, all compromised. And the type of people that have done this, and as you said, you know, come out and say, you know what, I made a mistake. And it's, uh, you know, incentives uh, versus saving the lives of people. So you go, that incentives is like a debt machine. You are, you are gallows. You put the guy in a, a guillotine and chop off his neck versus, uh, you know, saving lives. So, I mean, be honest enough to come out and say, you know what, we apologize. But they can be yeah. sued if, if, if this, uh, this is uh, proven, uh, doctor. Yeah, you see, uh, Shafat, what doctors didn't realize uh, is that the pharmaceutical industry has gotten... Uh, uh, with governments itself, have clearly signed uh, non-liability. Uh, they they coerced governments into doing that to say that, look, we don't know if the vaccine is going to be safe, and if you insist on safety, then we're going to have to take our time to test and develop it. But if you forego the safety and don't allow, don't make us liable for any safety issues, then we can rush it to market. And I think with the panic that ensued with the deaths and the cases, uh, governments were coerced into signing those agreements. So now the pharmaceutical companies are no more liable for any injuries. Uh, if you look at the Nuremberg trials with uh, the, uh, the, the the Jewish Holocaust, it was the doctors and nurses that got hanged, not the government, uh, not the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so, so doctors, by dispensing this without due consideration and process, have taken a huge risk. And uh, at the end of the day, they were the ones that administered it to the patient, irrespective of its toxicity, irrespective of what the drug manufacturer said. Uh, no one can come to your doctor, give him something and tell him to give it to your patient. And he doesn't look at what it is and gives it to your patient, his patient. Uh, he's the, he's the uh, stopgap between the pharmaceutical industry and the patient. My job is to make sure that whatever I do with my patient is safe. And whether the person selling me the drug claims it's safe, I shouldn't be believing that. I should do my own investigations. So, yeah, doctors are going to uh, be at uh, high risk once this, once this comes out. But, uh, Shabbat, on the, on the flip side of that, two issues. One, uh, the Health Professions Council or Medical Protection Society, if you look at legal issues around the world that afflict doctors, it's the doctors that refuse to admit that there's a mistake or it's those that have arrogance with their patients that get sued the most. So when you look at uh, trends with how patients sue, if a doctor did something in good faith and explained it to the patient, and there was a, 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 a foreseen problem. Now, the doctor is liable because uh, he made a mistake, but the patient understands that he was trying to do his best, and yes, mistakes happen, and you find he doesn't get sued simply because he explained to the patient he was trying to do his best, he got a good bedside manner. But you can get a very, very good doctor that has a very poor bedside manner and is very arrogant, and he makes a, 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 it doesn't make a mistake, but some unforeseen consequence happens that is not his fault, but because the patient is so disgruntled with the service he got, he'll sue the doctor. So I think the arrogance of doctors and what's transpired not being willing to 
uh, accept that there's mistakes is going to lead to a lot of lawsuits. But the doctors that admit and the doctors that apologize and realize that there was a mistake, their patient's not going to sue them. They'll realize, well, he made a mistake and he, he acknowledges it. He tried to do his best. The second thing I think we need to be aware of, the pharmaceutical companies are not uh, the people in control of this pandemic. So trying to sue them is, uh, we, we, we're not going for the culprits. Uh, the culprits in this are the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, there's a cabal of people who operate outside the boundaries of law, outside the governance structures. Uh, there are a cabal of people that uh, that operate beyond all these and trying to rule the world. So they have their own military. They have their own governance. Uh, they can murder people without any repercussions. Uh, but they use, they've used taxpayers' money to fund these organizations. So if you look at the US military, it gets funding from the taxpayer, but it's used a portion of that funding to set up these secret organizations. And so they're funded by the public. They don't tell the government what's going on. The government has no clue. There's a lot of classified information out there that nobody knows about, and it's kept within this cabal. And they use that information to manipulate the world. So yeah, there's a lot of, lot of intricacy in what's going on. And I think we must be very cautious in how we define our enemy and who we choose to prosecute. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, then uh, on a lighter note, uh, doctor, I had a friend the other day, I was having a conversation with him and he said, hey, you know, chef, I got so many ivermectins with me. I said, yeah, you know, the thing, uh, well, well, what are you doing with it? He says, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, but uh, the wife says uh, the cat needs a uh, deworming and the dog dog needs a uh, deworming. Yeah, yeah. Can I use that for my cats and dogs? I said, hey, I'm not a vet. Maybe if I talk to Dr. Shankara Chetty uh, soon, I will talk. I mean, what's your views? He's got so many. Can he crush it and give it to his uh, cat yeah, or you dog? Can, you can. Yeah, you can. It's between 0 0.3 and 0 0.6 milligrams per kg. So just weigh the dog and between 3, 0 0.3 and 0 0.6 times the weight of the dog will tell you how much he needs. Uh, look, uh, Shaf, when it comes to... Uh, when it comes to ivermectin, ivermectin was uh, made for human beings. It got the Nobel Prize when it was made. Uh, it's uh, such a diverse medication. And of course, its, it's most well-known benefit was as an anti-parasitic. Then it started to be used in the veterinary sector. So it started off as a human medication, and I can't understand the misinformation about horse paste. You know, everyone says, oh, it's a veterinary medication. It's not. It's a human medication that was used in animals. Now, suddenly, because it works for COVID, it's an animal medication. And besides being anti-parasitic, it's shown benefit as an immunomodulator. It's been used for nonspecific rashes topically. Uh, it's shown such great benefit uh, in the treatment of certain cancers. So ivermectin is a diverse medication. It's a zinc ionophore, so it gets zinc into your cells, and uh, that helps you fight viruses, any viral infection. People were wondering how ivermectin fights viruses. When zinc enters your cell, it kills any virus that might be there. It prevents viral entry. Uh, for the zinc to get in, you need something to help it get in, and those are the zinc ionophores that get them in. So hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are zinc ionophores. So zinc is the bullet. Uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are the gun you need to fire that bullet. Uh, so it worked. It worked well. So yeah, ivermectin's a, a drug that I think was very, very uh, unfairly uh, criticized and uh, ostracized for, for the work that it did. But uh, a very safe medication in billions of doses given globally. We haven't had any major side effect reported. So I, didn't, I don't see how you're going to protect the public by banning it. Uh, it didn't harm anyone in the first place, you know? So, mm. yeah. It's crazy. No, but there's, there's, an agenda. there's an agenda. You know, there's an agenda. And, you know, okay, let's do a quick analysis because you can see that other brother is jumping. He's getting excited. He said, hey, we're on to something. Yeah. Doc, if, uh, for example, if a cat is a, a 4.5 kgs, so uh, one, one or two tablets will do the job then. Yeah, if you work out about a half, a, half a milligram per kg, if the cat is 4.5 kgs, then you're looking at about two, two to three milligrams. It's, I think it comes in a 12 milligram tablet, uh, Shafat. So uh, uh, look, 
uh, half a tablet is enough. But remember with, uh, with ivermectin, we've been using it in the treatment of uh, cancer. And when you look at the dosing of ivermectin, we've given patients doses 10 times the recommended dose to cure cancers. And they've had no side effects. So when you look at the recommended dose, it's a recommended dose for parasites. But if you overstep that dose, there's no harm. If the first side effect you'll see with an overdose or a too high a dose is a blurring of vision. Uh, so what we do with cancer patients is we put them on ivermectin. We gradually increase the dose till they start to get blurred vision. At the dose they get blurred vision, we know that's the maximum, so we decrease it slightly and the blurred vision disappears, and then we keep them at that dose. So that's how we find each patient's maximum dose. Mm, so seeing, I mean it, mm. seeing that we can go up to 10 times the usual dose, yes. even if it makes a mistake and gives the cat a full tablet, nothing would happen. You know, absolutely brilliant. I mean, I'm going to take you way back. I don't know if you, uh, your family did this, but there used to be a tradition, you know, where in our times where the family used to uh, detox in this way. The castor oil used to come out and uh, yeah. a piece of orange juice in your mouth. So, you know, you have to bite into your orange. And uh, then deworming was such an important and integral part of uh, that culture of yesteryear. Yeah. And I'm wondering now, I mean, uh, another advice you can give the people, you got a lot of worms in your tummy, and that's why you go on eating more and more, and you say, yummy, yummy. What about ivermectin uh, yeah. uh, to, 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 do, to deworm yourself, yeah. uh, doctor? Uh, Shafat, uh, when it comes to intestinal parasites and the bacteria you have, they're a bit of a double-edged sword in that uh, it was traditional for us to deworm regularly. So you don't look with deworming, you clear the majority of the parasites, but within a few weeks, you will have them back. Uh, they are normal part of our gut flora, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so yes, just to prevent overgrowth and the wrong ones growing. Uh, with the bacteria, the same. You get the wrong bacteria, you get wind or bloating. Uh, you find that you can develop runny tummy irritability. So our aim was to clean out your gut and get it restarted, like your septic tank. You know, you don't want to clean it too well. You want some bugs to remain there because they must regrow. But you want to take out the bad ones. And yeah, uh, castor oil with a little bit of orange to take away the taste. Used to give us the runs. We used to take a deworm a day or two before. <laughs> uh, was the normal, normal. And we're back to that, uh, Shabbat. You know, I mentioned in one of our interviews that we've seen the virus infect the bacteria of your gut. And to clear that out, we put patients on an antibiotic to kill those bugs that are infected. And then we ask them to take castor oil, uh, have a good runny tummy for a day, and then we put the good bugs back. Uh, on the flip side of that, when I say a double-edged sword, uh, there's a school of thought that cancers are not really cancer, but an overreaction to a parasite. Uh, and... There's quite a few researchers around the world that are investigating in that direction, uh, that uh, cancers are actually overreactions to uh, tissue parasitic infections. And then on the, the, another angle to that is uh, there was a surgeon who removed tumors. And what he found was that no matter which tumor he removed, wherever it was in the body, uh, all the cancers he'd removed in his life were white in color even if the tissue that it was growing in was not. Uh, your liver is a very maroon kind of bloody color. But when you get liver cancer, the cancers themselves are white. So he thought that the cancer itself is likely to be some kind of fungus that's growing in the body and the body reacts to it and turns it into a tumor. Now, when we look at treatment, we're finding that anti-parasitics uh, actually are reversing cancers. So have we been misled to think that cancers are a different entity or is it just a follow on on chronic fungal and parasitic infections? And that's the reason we're getting good benefit. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's that there might be the detrimental part of fungi and parasites in your system. But uh, a study was done recently where they took patients with inflammatory bowel disorders, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. And what they did was they divided them into two groups and one group was treated, all of them were treated with conventional treatment to settle their gut. But one half of them were actually given worm eggs 
so that they would develop worms in their gut, uh, tapeworms, and you know. And what they found was when oh, both both groups recovered well, but the group that didn't get the worm eggs and didn't get infected with worms, their gut went back to being irritable very quickly. Whereas the ones that had worms in their gut remained healthy for far longer. So it seems that there's something that these worms do in our gut that's beneficial. So now where where the science is leading, well, you know, with with myself, Shafat, I always take things back to my garden nature. And I looked at it and I thought, well, the worms are doing something in the gut that's actually healing it. And it can't be the worm. I mean, I can't, I can't tell my patients to, to get worms to be, feel better. <laughs> but I thought it might be something in the saliva of the worms, or it might be something in the feces of the worms that is beneficial to the gut. And of course, we know that, uh, you know, when you go to the nursery, uh, they're selling earthworm pee to sprinkle in your garden. And it's, it's a, it's, they, they have earthworm farms and the, they have to spray it to keep it very moist. And the liquid that drains out of them, they collect it and sell it as one of the best fertilizers you can get. And we know when there's earthworms in the soil, uh, that soil is good for planting. Everything grows well. So there's some kind of nutrient being made by these kind of worms that are beneficial to our health. And I think some research needs to go in that direction. So as you can see, worms are good and bad. They're not our friends, neither are they our foes, and I think they have their place. And the good Lord made them all. Everything begins yeah, small. Yeah, yeah. And, we just got to figure out their purpose, and then we can yeah. utilize them for the right purpose. Well, there's a genius there, people. I just gave the line. He gave me the full answer. And, you know, doctor, uh, talk about these things that, that's happening around us. And, uh, you know, every day your cells are regenerating. It's dying and the new cells are coming through every second. There's something happening in your body. And as you said, there's a reason for that. I mean, just the other day I got stung by a bee and I wasn't aware of it when I was uh, busy feeding my uh, poultry. And the next moment I felt the sting. But when I looked and I saw this bee actually give me that sting, and uh, then I quickly called my uh, garden boy and I said, take this out. He actually broke this thing. So you, yeah. the, 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 sa the sack was in my finger. So next moment it swelled up and, you know, all these things. And then I quickly yeah. did a Google, Google search. <laughs> and Google yeah. gave me some good answers. It says, okay, you take that, uh, make sure you get that black head out or, you know, that sack out from your hand because that is going to, and it became sore. So um, I took uh, the butter knife, turned it uh, the other side. And I pressed through, I took that out, uh, and uh, what do you call this, Allergex. I bought some Allergex, and I had that, and I was cured within two days, but it went painful for overnight, uh, doctor. So uh, yeah. you find all these things, it's a, it's a simple thing to do, but uh, sometimes if you uh, or if I was uh, allergic to something, I, it could have been bad, uh, doctor. Talk to me. Yeah. Uh, Shafat, that's exactly what happened in COVID, and that's the simplicity of solving COVID. Uh, when, uh, when if you got uh, people that say say you take four guys, tongue with a bee, different uh, allergic propensity, the guy that's got no allergy he'll feel some pain, his finger would swell a little, but by the end of the day it went away, there was no reaction. Uh, mm. The second guy might be mildly allergic to bee stings, uh, like you are, and when you got stung it itched, it swelled up. Uh, but not so bad. Uh, it was locally local reaction. And if you took an antihistamine, maybe some steroid, mild steroid with it, it'll go away. Even if you left it alone after two or three days, it'll settle down on its own. Uh, the third guy is moderately allergic to that uh, bee sting. And if the bee stings him, then he gets a rash over his whole body. Now, because it's more global reaction in his whole body, if you do not treat it, it won't go away. And it can persist for months, but it's not strong enough to kill him. It's just a rash over his body. And if you don't treat it, it'll persist. And that is basically what long COVID was. Right? And the last guy is very allergic to bee stings. And when he gets a sting, within a day or two, if you don't treat him, he's going to die. And that was the severe cases in COVID that either ended up in hospital or ended up dying. Uh, but in all those three allergic reactions, they're simple to turn around. Even the guy with the worst reaction, 
if you catch him immediately after the bee stung him and you put him on appropriate treatment, you'll turn that reaction around within a couple of hours. So everyone that had COVID had that kind of reaction. And I kept saying from the start, the treatment to turn it around is similar to treating a bee sting. Doctor, so that shows of, uh, physiologically, we are so different uh, in our makeups, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's genetic as well, uh, Shafat. Like a dad allergic to penicillin will have all his sons allergic to penicillin. Mm. It goes from mother to daughter, those kind of allergies. Uh, that's the reason in the pandemic we saw when families were affected, the father and son died, but the mother and daughter were fine. Or in some families, the mother and daughter died, but the son and the father were fine. You know, there's a genetic predisposition to having that reaction. And that's what we saw in COVID. Uh, some were allergic to the bee sting and some weren't. That's the reason you found a 55-year-old guy in the first wave was absolutely healthy with no comorbidities. He died. He was allergic to the bee sting. But a 90-year-old guy who drank and smoked and had five stents and was diabetic and hypertensive and didn't control his, his, his habits, uh, he got stung with the bee and nothing happened. He wasn't allergic. So when he got COVID, he recovered uneventfully. So we're looking in the completely wrong direction, thinking this is a virus causing the problem. And like you say, with the bee sting, it is that simple. I'm sure every doctor on this planet treated a bee sting. But I'm sure every doctor on this planet hasn't used remdesivir and put patients on ventilation. So I think we should have mm. just went back to good old uh, medicine, uh, the way yeah. we do it. Mm, absolutely, Doc. And uh, well, I got a, a very interesting letter in front of me. I'm going to read it to you. It uh, concerns a, a special doctor. Listen to this, uh, Dr. Chetty. I'm only going to read a paragraph and uh, then you can comment. Uh, it says, open letter in support of uh, this wonderful doctor. It says, allegations of unprofessional conduct against uh, this wonderful doctor, dear members of the Health Professional Council of South Africa. We are writing to express our strongest support and admira admiration for this beautiful doctor. We were very shocked to learn that this uh, lovely doctor has been charged by the Health Professional Council of South Africa for unprofessional conduct. We find it particularly surprising and uh, disturbing that HPCSA has uh, taken such an action against one of the most knowledgeable, insightful, and internationally renowned experts in the treatment of COVID-19 from South Africa. We are writing to state, number one, that this uh, wonderful doctor, uh, doctor's conduct and statements are in accordance with uh, the norms and standards of the medical profession. Number two, the charges that have been alleged against him should be dropped. That doctor, people, is right in front of me. He's giving me a big smile. His honesty, his eyes are all sparkling here. Dr. Shankara Chetty, this is a feather in your cap. I want you to, you know, uh, perhaps um, elaborate more on this and uh, give uh, the listeners, uh, you know, an insight to that. I mean, you gave us a preamble, but uh, to yeah. talk about this and how it makes you feel that, you know, uh, people in your profession are there with you also, doctor. Yeah, Shafata. Just the, the, the timeline with the case, <clears throat> uh, I was sent a letter in January 2022 uh, notifying me of a complaint that was lodged uh, against me with the Health Professions Council by a professor from, uh, he's, uh, he's the head of medicine at Wits University. Uh, he made certain uh, claims that I was uh, misleading the public with information. Uh, that I was making outlandish physiologic claims, that I was using medication that was uh, not authorized, and uh, also I was uh, misleading patients on the toxicity of the uh, COVID vaccine. Uh, it all stemmed from that video that I mentioned I did, uh, trying to warn people about uh, the vaccinations. And of course, I think he was aware of my treatment strategies uh, globally, but I'm not sure whether they were aware of the work I'd done globally. Uh, so the council wrote to me and wanted a reply. So I replied uh, in no uncertain terms. Uh, the, the, the gist of my reply, Shafat, was to say that, look, I can prove everything I said because time had lapsed and everything was now being proven. Uh, I also mentioned that uh, as to Professor Fenter's uh, uh, education or, or knowledge in the subjects of uh, physiologic claims and tenets of medicine. I was one, unaware of his education or lack thereof in those subjects. But I, I said that he needs to get someone better informed to educate him about the difference I've made in COVID. 
And I know that this professor was selling the government PCR tests, so he had a financial incentive in this. And so I said, I said, look, I hope his lack of acknowledgement of my work is because of his ignorance and not any motive he might have in his response to the pandemic. Uh, that, I think, uh, got them on the back foot, uh, seeing that I was willing to stand and fight, and so they left me alone. In October last year, they wrote me a letter to say that after a committee hearing, they have resolved to have an inquiry into my professional misconduct. So with that, with that letter, I wrote back to them, stating that I would like to know the latitude of this inquiry and the specific nature of my professional misconduct, as the complaint was very vague. And I vouched to give them all the research and uh, clinical information they would require to have an informed inquiry. Uh, they did not contact me for that information. And then I received a letter this year, which was the charges against me. That was in January. Uh, sorry, that was uh, this year sometime that they, they brought up the charge sheet against me. Uh, the charges. Uh, state that I've spread misinformation on public platforms, I didn't do what's best for my patients, and according to them, cast aspersions on other health practitioners uh, in their way of treating. That means talking out against remdesivir and, uh, and uh, the ventilations. So we had a the hearing was scheduled for the 17th of May. Uh, prior to that, I had my attorneys contact them for discovery to tell me which patient and exactly what was uh, not in the best interests. Uh, we gave them a list of things that they needed to clarify. They say on public platforms uh, that I spread misinformation, but the law does not state public platforms. So they garnished the law, so it includes my actions. Uh, we, I also asked them to furnish me evidence that the vaccines are safe and effective. Yeah, if they claim that uh, me stating vaccines as unsafe and ineffective is misinformation, then they must first pro provide me proof that it's safe and effective to call it misinformation in the first place. So by the 17th of May, they had not yet provided me that uh, information. We started the hearing and adjourned it immediately. It's been adjourned to the 28th, 29th and 30th of November this year. But uh, they made it look, they set aside three days because they know the gravity of the case. They intend to call their, well, supposedly expert witnesses. Uh, I, uh, I'm calling global expert witnesses as well. I've got a Dr. Vijay Subramanim that's coming down from uh, Malaysia. Uh, he's part of the organization, the head of the organization where I train doctors. So he's going to be part of the educational side of things where I've educated other doctors uh, uh, in treating COVID. Uh, I've got a uh, uh, Wakim Gerlach. He's a nutraceutical developer, and we've worked together through the pandemic developing nutraceuticals. So, from the research perspective, he's going to be here. I'm trying to get Dr. Peter McCullough to come down. Uh, Peter McCullough has been one of the very few doctors in the West that's acknowledged all the achievements I've had through the pandemic itself. So, he's a very well, world renowned published uh, cardiologist. So he will speak from the research perspective uh, and from uh, being a physician from the uh, from the treatment perspective. And as well, he's just published an article recently that showed that they looked at autopsies around the world and they found that 74% of the autopsies done showed clear relation to vaccines as the cause of the deaths. Uh, that was taken off the Lancet uh, journal within 24 hours of being put onto the preprint server. But it's been published now in another journal, and uh, so he can speak to the nature of vaccine injuries. Uh, I want Philip Macmillan to come down. I'm trying to arrange that. Uh, Philip's been the one that's interviewed me, and he's the he'll speak towards the academic side of things and the understanding in the pandemic. So yeah, we we're getting our ducks in a row. Uh, my team of experts is coming from abroad, so we made it clear that the dates cannot be changed. We cannot defer it. We cannot postpone it. It's got to be on those days. I also made it clear that my experts need to be party to the uh, testimonies of their experts. So either video recorded testimony or virtual presence of my experts on the day of their testimony. But I'm in the process of writing a letter to my attorney, 
seeing that they've accused me of spreading misinformation on public platforms, which is their garnishing of the rules, uh, the, the victim in that uh, claim or charge would be the public. I misinformed the public. So wouldn't it be prudent that the public has uh, a window into the proceedings of my hearing so that uh, the, the misinformation can be clarified directly to the victims? So I'm hoping that my case would have uh, uh, would be open to the public, uh, so that uh, yeah, they, I'm using it as an opportunity to enlighten. Yeah. So, so yeah. from the from the scientific perspective, I seem to be getting my ducks in a row. From the constitutional perspective, Shafat, it's a it's a, it's it's, a, it's a, an affront to my uh, constitutional rights, freedom of speech and expression. Uh, that is a constitutional. Uh, challenge. To do that, uh, I want to get together a few of the politicians. Uh, Sheikh Imam Mansour uh, offered support and he mentioned that there's other parties in uh, parliament that do support. I've gotten uh, support from the ACDP with uh, Abdul Mansour, the NFP. I've had a call with the Freedom Front Plus. Uh, so there's, and of course, with Jay Naidu. Uh, so I want to bring together a group of politicians from different parties that must come together with the same with the same vision in mind to discuss the, or, to, or to spearhead the challenge, the constitutional challenge to the case. So, yeah, we've got many different angles to to look at the case. You know, uh, before I get into, I mean, uh, this is a stroke of uh, genius also where you talk. I mean, you actually turn the tables. You said, okay, you find me uh, uh, spreading uh, disinformation. So show me where I went wrong. Show me and yeah. prove to me that uh, this uh, vaccination is uh, safe and effective. Yeah. And you got them it, on. I mean, you turned the tables, no uh, doctor. And there's no proof, Shabbat. Absolutely no proof. Uh, mm. There's a few other things I want to do. Uh, look, I've, I've treated people around the globe and I've had... In fact, there's a mining magnet in Australia. Uh, well, the wealthiest man in Australia is a billionaire, uh, Clive Palmer. Uh, I treated him for COVID uh, at the start of the pandemic. And when he heard about what happened, he contacted me and said, I'll finance everything. Call who you want. I'll pay their flights. I'll pay their accommodation. I'll pay for a holiday for all of them. You just make sure that the truth is told. So I've got sponsorship for my entire legal defense and for other doctors that I want to come down to South Africa in support of my case. Uh, so, yeah, God works in uh, mysterious ways. Uh, but uh, the, the bottom line is, Shafat, I put my head down. I knew there's an agenda. I spoke about it, but I kept my head down and treated the patient in front of me. I did not go poking at all these people, be it uh, Professor Karim or the council or the Minister of Health. So uh, I kept to my lane. I kept to my lane. But if they choose to engage me in a debate, then I'm more than willing to have that debate. But it wasn't started by me. I, I've been in many fights in my life, Shafat, but I've never started one of them. <laughs> so, yeah, but I'm not one to back away from a fight. Now, I know you're the one that defends yourself. Uh, men of truth uh, gen uh, generally do this. They don't go on the offensive. They always wait for you to make the first attack. And then they yeah, come and... Not and, and, and yourself. Yeah, because when they come, they come in like a tsunami. <laughs> Everything. And uh, one other thing we want to do, uh, Shafat, you know, everyone just dismisses us as uh, conspiracy theorists. You know, uh, I noticed when Dr. Hasim Malotra came to South Africa, he's a world-renowned cardiologist. His dad uh, was a well-known cardiologist as well. Uh, him and his dad took the Pfizer vaccines. And then after the second dose, his dad had a sudden heart attack and passed away. He insisted on an autopsy and he found that, yes, it was the vaccine. He had a, a clot, a bad clot. And so he started speaking out against the vaccine. And as soon as he did that, he got ostracized. I mean, uh, Alan Wilde, the DA premier, uh, ranted and raved and called him an anti-vaxxer. And why did we allow him in our Western Cape Parliament? And I had to take him to task to say, where do you get off calling someone that took two vaccines an anti-vaxxer? That's a cheap cop-out so that you don't have to really mm -hmm. look at the problems that are there. And I mentioned to him, I said, you know, it's that kind of prejudice that stirred the divisions of apartheid. Seems you have forgotten, you know? 
that that unnatural division of people with no basis. Uh, so, uh, and when Dr. Malhotra went around the country to do talks, discussions, uh, in a few places, he was very poorly received. In fact, we had a, a meeting scheduled at uh, Ledmed Hospital, Shifa Hospital in Durban, in the boardroom. And the topic of discussion was going to be ethics in medical practice. And the morning of that meeting, the doctors got together, of Shifa Hospital got together and went to the management and insisted they don't want an anti-vaxxer in their hospital and they canceled the meeting. And I thought that was very poor form. Uh, I mean, uh, come on, you're an educated doctor and you can have that kind of attitude towards a world-renowned cardiologist mm -hmm. simply because he doesn't have your opinion or view, doesn't share your view. That's arrogance at the, of its highest form. So when I look at my arrangements for my experts coming down, I don't want the same thing. I think we've gone past the point of trying to enlighten people. Uh, so when we have our discussions, I want people of the same uh, frame, uh, people with the same ideas, critical thinkers to be invited to these meetings. I think it's time we show the public that we have a huge following and we don't need the validation of mainstream to move this agenda ahead. So we're planning to have discussions, meetings. I'll get the politicians involved. We can have robust discussions between the science, the social economics, and the politics around what's transpired with COVID. And Modern Medicine, the journal that published my article, has been pushing me for a follow-up. So I want to speak to them about being a co-host to the expert witnesses when they come to South Africa. If we do our discussions under the auspices of modern medicine, we can't easily be discounted as conspiracy theorists. It's being held by a prominent journal in the country. Mm. Well, uh, the final thing, uh, doctor, we got uh, yeah, about uh, two minutes to go here uh, to sign this letter of uh, support for uh, Dr. Shankara Chetty. Tell us what the people have to do, doctor. Uh, the letter's out there, Shafat. You can share. There's a link. Uh, the letter came about, uh, is a mathematician uh, from a university in Texas who used my protocol to help his family. We've never met. And when this, uh, the charges came out, he wrote to me to say, I've, I've went through all your, your, your patient data and what you found is absolutely significant. The South African government would have been well advised to follow your work. And so he took the opportunity to put together that letter with all the evidence, subsequent evidence or proof of what I was saying uh, that was subsequently proved true. He passed that letter on to some of the leading doctors, researchers and scientists globally who signed it on, on my behalf. Uh, and now he's put that out to the public. Uh, doctors around the world uh, to sign and uh, add their signature to that petition. Uh, every two weeks they update it and post it out. So if you share the link with your viewers, they can go to that link and pledge support. Yes. It's uh, it's open to the public, Shafat, so it's not necessarily medical professionals. There are quite a few patients from around the world I see have signed it who've been on this journey along with me. So, yeah, let's... Uh, uh, let, let's see where we get to that. Uh, yeah. they, they actually mentioned to the council that if they persist with uh, charging me, uh, they will set up uh, an own independent board of uh, experts globally to oversee my case. Now, as much as they're pushing the council to say we want these charges dropped, uh, I'm quietly on the side uh, hoping that they're not dropped because I want my day in court. Yes, sir, Doc, I'm looking at uh, your link right in front of me, and it says uh, all small letters, drlf at hushmail.com, and include uh, your support letter in the subject line. And if you have been a patient of Dr. Chetty, you can include a short paragraph about your experience. Uh, signatures are not uh, processed automatically, so please be patient as we periodically add them to the document. So that's it. That's the link, uh, doctor. All small letters, drlf at hushmail.com. There's it done, uh, doctor. Brilliant having you this evening. Your parting words before I let you go. Uh, Shabbat, we, we all got some big changes coming. There's always light after the darkness. Uh, we're fighting for our sovereignty. And I think uh, people can't sit on the fence anymore. Everyone needs to stay, take a stand. And I think we must think of our children. 
We want to leave them a better, brighter world without all this collusion and corruption. Uh, the economists don't take care of the economy. The teachers don't take care of education. The politics, uh, politicians don't take care of politics. And we've seen the scientists don't take care of science. So we need to, we need to change that. Mm. So yeah, a lot coming, but I, I see a bright future. I see a lot of hardship, but I see a bright future. So I hope everyone will take a stand and come together in solidarity. I like your optimism, and uh, yes, the uh, truth shall prevail and falsehood uh, pre uh, perish. Doctor, you have a beautiful evening ahead. We'll talk to you soon. And uh, yes, uh, you know what? There's a lot of positivity coming from you. Have a blessed Thank evening, you. Doc. Thank yeah, you, Thank you. And a blessed evening to you, too. Uh, you too, blessed uh, doctor. Yes, our Dr. Shankara Chetty there. Sign that uh, petition, people. Uh, send the email in. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah, we will continue after that.